Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the traditional treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I wanted to talk about some recent observations that I've made, that other folks have made with the coming of spring, specifically focusing on one group of species, which up until maybe even last year, no, it couldn't have been last year, maybe two years ago, I thought was a single species. But... It's not. It's a whole bunch of species, possibly 50 species. And I didn't know this for a long time, and I just looked at them and assumed one, maybe two species tops based on different colors and morphologies. What I'm talking about is is the genus Morcella, um, the morels, the mushrooms. And for so long, I've approached them as one species, or maybe two, if you consider like the black morels. But they aren't. And there's so much research behind this. And it was only into looking into it, like, really recently, after friends had seen some, and I'd seen one growing at at my work in the forest, in a cedar forest, that I started, like, realizing like holy there's a lot going on here stuff more than i more than i ever knew and it's it's a lot so i wanted to look up uh some more information about it and there is a lot of information right if you think about this species any species that we have an economic relationship with um will get a lot of funding for research and morales there's a huge economic base to their harvest to their collection to their to their to like i guess do we call agriculture when it's a mushroom i think so i think we'll still call agriculture um to morale agriculture and developing ways for folks to be able to better uh hone that craft of producing morales for sale because they're such a prized edible People love to eat them. They're very tasty. I, I've eaten them, and definitely a lot of wild mushrooms I forego or I'm not that interested in. But morels, if I see them, if I see a good patch, maybe not just one, but if I see a good patch, I will likely pick some and bring them home and cook them. Whereas uh, some of the other species, not so much. It's just not. It's not a thing for me. I don't. I don't need to. I'm not excited about them. But the morels, I am, and I think that's commonly true around the world and so when we have to start thinking about species maybe that's something we would do for a lot of things to make sure that we're being safe about how we're collecting who we're collecting and while there are some possible mistakes that can be made it turns out most of these 50 morcella species if not all morcella Maybe not Merchellaceae, like the family of morels, but like the the genus morels, the ones that you can probably imagine in your mind. All of them are edible, and so that's that's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. So even if we don't know the exact species, 
we're still doing an okay job. And I, I, I want to get into that a bit more detail because there's a lot of information. I have my lap is full of books right now. I should move some of these before I actually began, but whatever. Um, so I'm going to read from some of these different books here with different uh, reports on, on the species. Species. That's not a word. On the different species and get into some of what I'm learning about because it's pretty cool and I thought I would share and maybe some of y'all don't have access to the same books or the same resources. And maybe you do, but you just don't want to. And that's why you tuned into the show. And that's perfectly reasonable. That's, that's what I often do. Just tune into whoever else's show or just listen to my friends. So I don't have to do the research. That's why we're in it. We're in it together. So here is me expanding a little bit more on morels. And then I've got a book review at the end for a new book on mushrooms put out by Autobahn. Um, and you can stay tuned and listen to that if you're curious about the work. It's a pretty neat book. So, And I will be reading from a selection from that book as well later. But I wanted to start with um, a pretty interesting uh, little entry, uh, family description of the Marcelliaceae from the book Ascomycete Fungi of North America, a Mushroom Reference Guide by... Michael Bug, Alan E. Bessett, and Arlene R. Bessett. And this is the University of Texas Press. And I've read from another book in the series, if it's a series, it's sort of a series, even if it's loose, on the, on the polypores of North America, of Eastern North America. And that book is so good that I, I, I spent the kind of annoying amount of money on this Ascomycete fungi of North America because this has been helpful to learn more about the ascomycetes, which are sometimes underrepresented in other field guides to, to fungi and mushrooms that we commonly encounter. So I'm not going to start from the very top of this because it describes some other, other genuses, but I'm going to jump in to where I think it starts to be interesting. The genus Morcella is represented by the morels. Morels have a distinct cap and stalk, but the cap is hollow, measures 2 to 10 plus centimeters tall, and the bottom of the cap is attached to the top of a, of a stalk. Morels are probably the single most highly prized and collected culinary mushrooms in all of North America, and are probably the most studied of the wild edible mushrooms. All morels known in the world come, of, come from a common ancestor in western North America, that diverged from Verpa and Discyotis around 174 to 100 million years ago. Genetically, Morcella rufobrunia of the genus Morcella, having evolved in western North America an estimated 125 million years ago, the phylogenetic tree split roughly 100 million years ago to produce the Alaticlade, the black morels, the Alaticlade, in western North America, and the Esculentaclade, the yellow morels, in eastern North America. So I'm just going to repeat that, that the Alaticlade are the black morels, and the Esculentaclade are the yellow morels. Representatives of the Alaticlade, the yellow morels, started diversifying in western North America 75 million years ago, producing 75 several more 
Alataclade species in the West. The Alataclade representatives first migrated from Western North America to Asia and to Eastern North America 10 to 5 million years ago. And then, 5 to 2 million years ago, a new Elaticlade species spread from Asia both to Europe and back to Western North America. One of the new European Elaticlade species made the migration to Eastern North America where a new species evolved. The Esculenticlade representative remained unchanged in Eastern North America from about 100 million years ago to 60 to 55 million years ago when a single new yellow morel species appeared in Europe and has since remained unchanged. Between 30 to 10 million years ago, several additional Esculenticlade species evolved in eastern North America. Then, roughly 11 to 9 million years ago, the Esculenticlade had a second range expansion, this time to Asia. About a million years ago, two of the Asian species gave rise to two new Esculenticlade morels in Europe. All this time, the Marcella rufobrunia remained relatively unchanged in Western North America. I'm going to pause there for a second from the book, but I just wanted to read that because when we think about the morphology of this genus and how they're constantly, they're so different, they're so, so variable and so many different species within the genus, how does that all work? How does that all, how do, how do we, how do we point to this diversification? What's happening there? And I think that it's really cool to hear about this migration of these, like imagine the spores flying in the wind across the ocean or catching, like sticking on a bird that came down to eat something. And then the bird flies and then like shakes off their feathers and the spores land in a new continent. And they start to grow and they spread and diversify based on the conditions or whatever mutations. And the new new spores are spread and new genus are for, or not new genus, new, new species are just developing and evolving and then changing and moving. And I just like to think of this migration, especially in a context of, of fungi. Because I often think of evolution, when I innately think of evolution, I often think of mammals right away, and then maybe uh, other other animal species, and then I think of plants, but I don't often think of the fungi. So it's really fun to actually look at this and hear this, read this little report on the evolution of morels. Okay, here, I'm going to get back to the book. Putting a name on a morel is complicated by the fact that morels are multinucleate with as many as 50 or more haploid nuclei per cell. Only one pair of two compatible haploid nuclei migrates into each developing ascus, but each cell in morel hyphae contains dozens of possible pairs. Each one of the unique pairs is capable of forming a genetically distinct ascus. Practically, this means that in a cluster of 4 to 20 morels, each morel in the cluster is like to be, likely to be genetically distinct. That's cool. That's pretty damn cool. This is a far different picture than is found in the basidiomyces, which are dicaryotic, two nuclei per cell, and that's much simpler to study. Two morphologically identical morels 
can be genetically very distinct, while two morphologically different morales can be closely related. Okay, I'm going to stop there again. Isn't that amazing? You can look so, so different, but be so, so related, or you can look similar, very, very similar, and be so genetically different. Again, such a far stretch from my mammalian form, right? That like my brothers and I, we look alike. We look like our parents. My partner, I look at photos of her grandparents. I'm like, oh, I see it. You know, and, and then to the morales, it could be so vastly different. You know, of, of course, we're different kingdoms and different ways of being in the world. But I'm just, I'm enthused by, by understanding this difference. And it makes me very excited. Morales are also able to exhibit a wide variety of forms and observable features and often integrate among described or presumed species. A young morale can look like one species, but if left alone to grow, will later resemble a second species, and still later the same morale will be presumed to be a third species. At all times, however, it will distinctly, distinctively be a morale. The only question will be, which morale is it? It is difficult to differentiate morale species using either macroscopic or microscopic means. Ultimately, we must rely on DNA analysis. Fortunately, all of the known morale species are choice edibles. I'm going to stop there. there there's a bit more on taxono taxonomy and like diversification of species, but I think that gets a bit too precise for me, but I don't need that right now. But again, that's from the Ascomycete fungi of North America by William W. Bugue. Uh, Alan E. Bessett and Arlene R. Bessett off the, from the University of Texas Press. I wanted to read, again, more descriptions uh, of different, uh, more, more descriptions of morales and where they come from and how to tell them apart. But I want to also just dig into a little bit more on that larger group, again, the Ascomycetes. What, what makes an ascomycete versus a bisidiomycete? Um, that's, that's a big conversation. That's, that could be a whole series in a podcast. But I wanted to keep it a little bit simpler. And I decided I would just read a section from Timothy Baroni's Mushrooms of the Northeastern United States and Eastern Canada Timber Press. Because I thought this was a very simple but nice... Uh, nice way of, of, of describing them. The ascomycetes produce their spores in microscopic cylindrical tubes or sacs, the ASCII, or I think I've also heard of ASCI, A-S-C-I, that act as water cannons, shooting the spores up into the air to be carried away and dispersed by air currents. The ASCII are arranged in fruit bodies of three main types. The apotheceum, that can be shaped like a sponge, a brain, a tongue, or cup. The parathecium, that is a minute flask with a pore-like opening. Usually many are embedded in a more solid support tissue called the stroma. And the cleistoceum, also minute but completely enclosed ball 
typical of the powdery mildews on plants in your gardens and hedgerows in the falls. Morels, false morels, cup fungi, earth tongues are examples of the apothecia ascomycetes, with the reproductive surface exposed or displayed openly for spore dispersal. The earth tongue allies, because they're erect like the earth tongues, for example, the cordyceps and the potostroma, are really more closely related to other parathecium producing ascomycetes, such as Daldenia, Hypomycetes, and Xyleria. For convenience of identification in this book, it's placed together based on the fruiting body form, which I, you know, I actually like that because it makes it easier for me. I'm just a beginner, so it's helpful. Of the more than 100,000 species of fungi described so far, 64,000 64, are ascomycetes. They produce moderately large fruit bodies, though not as large as some of the basidiomycetes. And they produce some of the smallest fruit bodies, about the size of a pinhead. In this group, we find the most expensive food on the planet, the truffles of Italy and France, and some fine gourmet morels from our local woods. But the group mainly includes lots of wood, wood decaying fungi, plant parasites, and even the animal parasites, ringworm. Many also form symbioses with plants, the mycorrhizae, and algae, the lichens. Understanding and learning about lichens. Okay, I'm sorry, I've done the reading from the mushrooms of the northeast, northeast of the United States and eastern Canada by Timothy Baroni. Um, but I wanted to just explain that for me, understanding lichen and how they reproduce taught me about the ascomycetes and how they reproduce because the ascomycetes form that uh, fungal component of lichens. And sometimes, sometimes, very occasionally, the basidiomycetes, but that's, that's definitely not that common. Um, in the section at the heading of morels and false morels in the same book, it says, morels and false morels are ascomycetes that produce an exposed <coughs> spore-producing layer on a stem. The shape of the reproductive apotheosium, that spore-producing layer, and in some cases the color along with the shapes and types of the spores determine the genus. Morchella species are choice edible fungi, whereas more gyrometra and halvella species produce toxins and should not be consumed. And one of the ways that we can differentiate between the conventional morales, and this comes up a lot. Everybody's like, oh, are you sure it's not a poison morale or a false morale? And I don't know if I'm exceptionally, I'm not exceptionally observant compared to other people. You know, today while driving, I almost got hit twice because I'm not observing the cars as best I could be. So I think that's, that's representative also of, of these much smaller life forms, these, these mushrooms. But I think that it's kind of easy to tell the false morels from the, from the true Morcella morels, tell them apart. The, the true morels, the Morcella genus, look kind of spongy in that 
there, there's like they're sponge like with pits and ridges according to this book and i think that's a very descriptive uh way of putting it they're kind of like honeycomb shaped not not uh, as uniform as a honeycomb but in that there's ridges around the outside of a pit in the middle where you would imagine the honey or the larva of the bees to be full whereas the false morels look brainy they look crinkly and and sort of bound up like a brain um and i wish i wish i could show you this is radio i cannot show you but if you look up the difference between a false morale and a, a true morale you you can start to see that difference because it is i think pretty clear between that 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 ridge and pits honeycomb look of the true morels and the the brain-like wrinkled and folded quality of the gyrometra the the false morels you just don't i don't think they look alike at all and most often another way to to, to identify them differently is that the true morels are hollow you cut them lengthwise and you open them up and they're hollow all the way through and the false morels will have some uh, pockets in them but most often as far as i know and i'm just gonna offer that this as far as i know they're not hollow like the true morels and i think that's that's pretty true but i mean i'm not a mycelium or yeah i'm not i'm not a mushroom expert i'm still learning that's what this whole show is about but yeah that's what i'm doing i'm learning and and i think that is one way that i've been able to tell some apart in the past that hollow true morale shape versus the not hollow morale shape and i'm going to read uh one of the entries on the yellow morale group the esculenta clade um and this is from the National Audubon Society's Mushrooms of North America, which is a new book. And I'm going to I'm going to offer a review at the end of the show all about this book. But I'm going to read a section from it because uh, the language in it is pretty clear. And I like that as well. So this is talking again about uh, the whole group of the Morcella esculenta or Morcella americana, as it describes. It, it, it uses the type species of Morcella americana. The rounded, pointed, more or less cone-shaped cap consists of a messy, honeycomb-like network of yellowish-brown to blonde to grayish-tan ridges surrounding deep pits. The stem is white or off-white and a little bit shorter than the cap, often within a gently constricted neck or boldly bulbous base. Like other morels, it is found in the spring. Uh, the growth habit is single to hundreds. The cap is cone-shaped or squat bullet-shaped, often curved or deformed, abruptly attached to the stem at the base, three to 10 centimeters high, with quite irregularly arranged pits, few or no ridges extending straight from the tip to the base, and they're hollow. Stem, often gently wrinkled or ribbed, especially at the base, 
which is often bulbous. We look at that stem and it is kind of like weirdly bulbous most of the time that I found them. Uh, two to five centimeters long, one to 2.5 centimeters thick, whitish, often stained yellow, white, and hollow. So remember the cap and the stem, all hollow, all hollow. And that's, that's pretty distinct. Spore print is off white. Habitat on the ground near trees, especially ash, apple, dead elm, in urban, riparian, or forest environments. And I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm going to include some stories later where I found them in fields as well. But um, range throughout North America except the Gulf Coast. Uh, the season is March to May, and they're coming up now. And I'm recording this. When am I recording this? I don't even know the date. It is May 5th. So, yeah. There's other species in this group that look similar, right? We've got the Marcella omeria, which is identical to the Marcella americana, primarily distinguished by DNA. Marcella prava is similar, often more squat, and even more heavily contorted pits and ridges, and may be restricted to Canada and northern U.S. states. Marcella diminutive, diminutiva, and Marcella septriformis have small caps, often only five or so pits high, sometimes in a sim simple rectilinear palette pattern, and may have skinny stems. Large specimens look like small specimens of Marcella americana. And then it goes on, and, but I just want to again describe that all the Marcella species are, are choice edibles. They should always be cooked before consuming because uh, they've been known in many cases to cause gastrointestinal upset, give you an upset stomach, but uh, they're generally pretty edible. And I know some people say, oh, I could eat one raw, whatever, and you probably could, but it's always best to, to cook them. And how I've cooked them in the past, oh, I'll start with my stories. I've got a few photographs on my computer that I've pulled up to describe some of the mushrooms, the, the morels that I found and where. So, you know, I feel like that gives a better ID feature sometimes than these field guides to tell a story, but also uh, compounded with the field guides makes for a better, makes for a better show. So how I like to prepare them how I last prepared them was last May. It was May 21st. I went out to a forest I call the Magic Kingdom. If you know me, you know where that is. And we were looking around, going for a walk. And I went to a large patch of wild leeks, ramps, sweet leeks, as I called them today, when I was out harvesting a couple of the leaves. And we were looking at the leaves and I was showing a friend who never tried them before and we were tasting them and there were five morels in, in amongst them. And then these were getting older. You could see that some of the parts were obviously being eaten by slugs, but we brushed the slugs off and we collected them and we brought them home and we actually sauteed them lightly in uh, a little bit of olive oil with garlic and the leeks, and then uh, cooked them with uh, rice noodles and sauteed carrots and a bit of uh, 
sort of crispy fried tofu. And it was delicious. It was really good. I, I had a wonderful time tasting those. And that was in a older, pretty stable maple beach, hop horn beam kind of forest, deciduous forest on the side of a hill. Um, and a closing canopy, but not quite all the way closed. And I'd say before that, the time I found a morel was again in May. Um, it was May 10th. And I was out with my friend Tamara and we were looking around. We were going to go trailing, uh, try and do some trailing of some deer just to get in the practice. But we stopped because we were looking around and uh, uh, someone who was working in the park uh, stopped us because it looked like we were just looking at the ground for something. Asked us if we lost our keys or anything like that. And we said, no, we're just looking for tracks. And he, he started telling us about the coyotes he'd seen when he shows up early for work in that park. And we listened intently because those who are there always know better than those who are visiting. And I, I appreciate his stories. And he, he told us about the osprey nest, which we'd known about. But he told us something neat that when the osprey come in, they grab the fish, they eat what they can, they drop the rest. And then the coyotes come up to the base of the osprey nest and they eat the leftovers, they eat the fish that have dropped from the osprey. And sometimes he, he said that you can find fish carcasses at the base of the osprey nest. So we're like, oh, that's exciting. So when he left, we went over to the osprey nest and found a fish carcass, um, probably some sort of trout based on what we could make out of the carcass. But actually uh, amidst that, be beside the dandelions, was a beautiful morale. And I've read in one of the books here, I can't remember which one, but it said that morels often find, uh, they find affinity or, or they, they're companions with dandelions. So that's something I want to pay more attention to, uh, wondering about dandelions and the morels. And is it a specific species of morale that likes to hang out with the dandelions or or not i just don't know that yet but it's something that gets me kind of curious so i want to look into that i didn't collect the morale that day i just left it there let it be um a few times when i found them i don't collect them i found one earlier this year a couple of days ago on um i guess i first saw april 13th this tiny little morale. So it wasn't worth taking even right away, but I just left it and it didn't grow that much. And it was growing in a cedar forest and it was beautiful and tiny and cute. In fact, I will use this morale for the image. So if you've seen the image associated with this podcast, if you're listening to it as a podcast or listening to it through the website to know the land.com, then the morale that you saw that cute little one, is when I saw most recently um, on April 13th. And it didn't get much bigger, but the top, the very tip of the cap started to sort of decay and sort of go away and left a little hole. And then someone else told me that they'd seen another morale recently with a similar thing that that top hole sort of melted away. So I wonder if that's a, 
uh, a, a trait of predation or if it's not an herb, if it's not a plant, you can't call it herbivory. What is the name when something eats a fungi? Fungur, fungibivory? Fungivore? Fungivory? Fungivory. It's probably fungivory. Yeah. So it's a sign of the fungivory. I think that'd be it. The last story I wanted to tell is just, it's, it's almost got nothing to do with the morale, except for the morale was huge. It was a massive one. And it was up uh, off of, like, I could throw the morale into Lake Huron. We were so close to Lake Huron, over by, close to Sogging First Nations. And this was in 2019, in June. And we were actually, what led us to the morale is we were trailing a black bear. Um, we were, we were following the impressions of the black bear left in the cedar, cedar duff, and uh, grasses, and low forbs. And we were just making our way through, and I followed ahead of the group, and when I went ahead of the group, found this 10-inch, or pardon me, not 10 inches. Could it have been 10 inches? No, that would be impossible, um, or improbable, pardon me. 10, 15 centimeter morale, largest one I've ever found. And it too was pretty eaten up by the slugs, maybe more so than the ones I ate. And uh, I collected this one, but actually by the time I got back home, it had pretty much fallen apart. And that could have been ideal for food, just like throw it in a stir fry and it would have cooked up fine, already broken apart, I wouldn't have to chop it. But I think at the time I was a little bit more conservative about what my food should look like if I'm getting it from the wild. So when it fell apart on its own, I did not consume it. But I thought it was really cool. And I think finding morales and, and most wild edibles is really exciting. Um, I didn't have a new show in the past little while because I just moved. You may be able to hear it in the background. My my roommates and my partner walking overhead in my house because I'm now in the basement as opposed to the top floor. And it's been a really hectic time. And so I have not published anything on the on the show. I also did that Call of the Land spiritual retreat at a local retreat center, which was amazing. It went really well. Talked about uh, bird language, talked about trailing and tracking, talked about interspecies connection and communication, talked a lot about Baptiste Morizot's work, uh, Martin Shaw and John Young. And uh, it was beautiful. It was a wonderful time. I'm really glad. Big thanks to Greg Kennedy for helping uh, put that on and for to Don Matheson for setting and setting up that relationship between Greg and I so we could do these things. It's it's all your fault that I'm having so much fun. Um but yeah, it's just been so busy. So I have not posted a lot of stuff on the show, but thank you for tuning in now to listen to this. But what I wanted to get into was that if you have been listening to the fill in shows on the radio station on CFRU ninety three point three FM in Guelph, broadcasting from the University of Guelph. Last week's show was about harvesting and the ethics of it, and specifically talking about uh, 
uh, whether we should be harvesting local native plants that are under pressure or whether we should also only be focusing on more abundant uh, non-native perhaps aggressively opportunistic plants and that's an ongoing conversation that can happen over and over again all the time and maybe in the coming weeks i will re make a new recording or have a new conversation with somebody about that because i think that'd be a wonderful thing to do but yeah, what, what are the ethics of harvesting these morels? When should we harvest them? When should we leave them alone? If mushrooms and fungi of all kinds produce these mushrooms, if, if we see these ascomycete mice fruit bodies, that is like picking an orange or picking an apple or picking a raspberry. It's not destroying the rest of the, of the, of the plant or the the, the, the mycelial network, which is underground, but these are just the fruiting bodies. And those do have purpose. They do have a function. So we shouldn't be taking them all, but I think it does have perhaps, perhaps in some ways less impact. Maybe I don't want to say that because I don't, I'm not sure about that entirely. But I think that, you know, if we have, like I've said on the show already, that if I find just one, I don't pick it. If I find a group, then I might take a portion of the group. But then I always have to remember that someone's going to come behind me, possibly find them again, discover this patch, and take some of those. And slowly, if everybody takes their own 5%, it only takes 20 people to annihilate the population or take all the fruiting bodies limiting who gets access to it beyond the human, right? If the snails, slugs, squirrels, whomever else interacts with these these fungi don't get any because the humans took them all. So I don't know. Questions abound. Especially for this diverse multi multi species genus of Marcella. So I wanted to cover one more thing before I ended the show, and that is I just got a new copy of the National Audubon Society Mushrooms of North America. Um, came out April 11th, and it's a hefty book. It's a big, chunky book. Uh, could be brought out into the field, but it is kind of large. According to the website, you know, it's seven and a half sort of, one seven point three eight by one and a half by nine and a half inches, and how much does it weigh? It was like three pounds or something. I read three point two pounds. So it's it's a large book, not necessarily a field guide, but that size allows for a lot. There's, as the website describes, nearly two thousand nine hundred full color photographs. 668 species like i'm ever going to get that far um 720 pages in the book 720 pages that makes me happy and canadian it's 53.95 us it's 40 dollars, which is comparable to other books of its size um yeah it's pretty cool uh it's got a lot going for it it's got a lot um, actually, it doesn't have that much that's missing. And even every time that I think of something that, you know, 
could be improved about it. I see why maybe it's a good idea that it doesn't have certain things. But in the heading, in the species profile, so the meat of the, the book, in the species profiles where you look up each individual species, it's got lovely photographs. I usually about one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, so between four and six photographs, which are great because it shows them in different positions, shows different parts of the mushroom. Um, and the species profiles include a short intro, the growth habit, description of the cup, cap, or the head, or the gills, or the stem if they have them, uh, description of the flesh, the spore print color. It talks about the habitat, the range. There are no range maps. It just describes the range. Good space saver. Um, it describes the seasonality, which I know some mushroom books don't have, but I appreciate that this has it. Uh, describes some lookalikes and the conservation status, which I think is pretty neat. Um, there is a section in the book near the beginning on the conservation of different mushrooms, and that includes topics on climate change, on different weather patterns that might be affecting uh, fungi and mushroom growth in light of climate change. I think that's really cool. I want to see more of that in these books because to avoid it is to avoid the ecology of the things that we're looking at. So it's it's like almost a necessary inclusion in any field guide to come, and more books should have that. And not only because it's an obvious pertinent thing that's occurring all the time but it's an education tool to get people thinking about climate change as a thing and also as how does it affect our ecology that it's not just some abstract oh no here comes this thing but like let's look at how it's going to interact with the things we know and are learning about i think it's just a cool idea i'm grateful they included that some more of the pros are, yeah, because it is such a hefty book, allows for those large photographs um, with the different seasonal depictions. So like some of the photos, uh, like the inky caps, it's not one photo. It shows them in multiple stages of deliquescence, of, of sort of dissolving into themselves, which is great. And it shows them at different ages for some of the mushrooms so that you can start to... They're so variable, right? So it's it's nice to see them in this variety, in different even like shade and lighting conditions, in different growth forms, um, but all the same species. So I appreciate that, how a lot of these photos, and that they're large. Um, the seasonal right section is great too, because like they like I said, they have the seasons when they're when they're fruiting when these mushrooms appear and because it's a north a book covering north american species it'll have different seasons when you might see it on the west coast for some of them than when you might see it on the east coast so that's great to to know for some of the species like uh for the western bulbous honey mushroom it's october to december on the west coast september to october in the east great i'm grateful you include those differentials because that helps me with the ID if I find something out of season. It's probably not the one that I'm thinking about. Uh, the descriptions are also very easy to read. There's not a lot of technical nomenclature. Even the word nomenclature is pretty technical. There's not a lot of technical description, which can be a good thing. And I think it, 
it is a good thing, especially when we're trying to uh, show new folks different things about new species or new kingdoms, no domains. And a lot of the people who come up to me asking me about field guides are folks who are just trying to get into the stuff. So that is a great thing to have. It's like an accessible mushroom book because some of them just aren't. Another cool thing that this book had, and I actually used the, it comes with a ribbon bookmark, uh, which I like, and I have this on this section, is a small section on host trees including oak, beech, birch, elm, hemlock, pine, and spruce, and maybe a couple of mushrooms that grow in each. Uh, I wish that this could be a more detailed table and have like all sorts of trees, species, and like it doesn't have to include all plant, all the mushrooms, part of me, um, but who's going to grow where? You know, maybe maybe a lot of these mushrooms are more cosmopolitan, and so it doesn't need to be specific to specific trees. But this idea is pretty cool, and I've not seen this in other mushroom books. So I think that would be really cool. One thing I did notice in the book is that it has no write-up about edibility or toxicity. And I think a lot of people are looking for that in mushroom books. But I kind of like that it doesn't have it because... I think that we, I don't always want to frame things in how I'm using it. Um, I want to frame things in, this is the individual I'm learning about, not about how I'm going to consume it. You know, I don't need to know how I'm going to consume it all the time because not everything's there for me to consume. So maybe that's a good thing to include. I know that consuming things is just another way of how do I interact with how do I appreciate this thing in this different way but to include to not include that in a mushroom book can be really nice and kind of different than the rest of them but it also doesn't include whether something's toxic or not so that could be detrimental if someone is looking for an edibility but this is not what this book is for I don't think so that's that's good to to note it also lumps together a lot of lookalikes. Um, if species look similar, it'll put them in the same in the same uh, species profile. But you know it's hard because the the book describes that there's like two hundred to three hundred thousand possible or or million species in the world, right? So we can't we species of mushrooms or fungi. Pardon me. So if we're working at these 668 species, you can't just, uh, 668 species is enough for 720 pages. So let's, that's fine. If you have to include the complexes and you can't really describe all of them with their photographs, why not just use the lookalike section and describe to me there how to differentiate them. And especially if they really look alike. So that's great, that's fine. Again, it's large. It's not necessarily a field guide. You could bring it out into the field. You could bring it in your backpack. The, it's sort of flexi-bound and durable. Maybe you can hear it a little bit just to give a sense of what it might look like through how it sounds. But I'm sure some folks will be, I'm sure I will end up bringing this in my backpack even though I'm a bit of a nerd about my books. Um, I do have indoor and outdoor copies of some of them because I'm a nerd like that. I don't know. Um, 
one thing though too is like it, there, I, maybe I've been spoiled. There's another book, Polypores and Similar Fungi of Eastern and Central North America. A lot more expensive. It's a hardcover and it just covers the polypores. And it does include some other things. But that one's organized by the binomial, by the scientific name. This book, the National Audubon Society of Mushrooms in North America, is organized, um, well, both of them are organized by uh, which order uh, the species is, but they're listed under first the, the, the common name and then the binomial. And I'm, I don't know. I think that sometimes the common names, sometimes I want to see more than one common name. Sometimes if it just makes more sense to me to be using the binomials, but maybe because this book isn't for like an expert class of mycologists, it's good to use the common names because that's the names that people are most familiar with and they aren't intimidating. But there's only one common name. So if you're going to use common names, I want to hear all of them. I love common names, especially for things like mycelium because they're so descriptive or they can also be so poetic and so beautiful. So why not include maybe more than one? It seems like some of the names they did prefer the more descriptive common names, but there's other common names that are, you know, just there like train wrecker. Oh yeah. Train wrecker. I, I can get behind that. Um, one of the cons that I did find in the book was that there's not a very large glossary. And I, I, I appreciate glossaries in, in books. But then I was thinking about it. I was like, oh, it's because this doesn't have very technical language. The authors made a point of making it accessible so you don't need that big of a glossary because they're describing things in ways that aren't too technical. And that's a bit of a relief in comparison to a lot of mushroom guides. Some mushroom guides are very alienating because they are so technical. I think you could drop the technical quality, which they've done in this book, but also include maybe some diagrams or illustrated glossary to make it a little bit more accessible still. Um, but yeah, that, that helps me then position this book that like if, when we think about the glossary, it also points to the fact that this book is maybe for beginners to those who are a bit more proficient, but maybe not experts. Um, I would position it for myself. That's where I'm at in my mushroom ID. Maybe I've been working on mushrooms, learning about them for about two or three years now. So the language in this, the photographs in this are still useful for me. And I really appreciate that. But if you are an expert, that's maybe where you move on to some of the other ones. But if you are looking for a great book to have around the house, maybe throw in your backpack. Um, this book, Mushrooms of North America by the Audubon Society, is a pretty good pretty good addition to a library so yeah check it out see if your library has it if they don't get your library to order it buy it yourself 
that's where my issue comes in. I love the library. I, I have songs that I've written about the library. I've performed in libraries. I go to the library all the time. But some of these reference books I like to have at home because I have my own library here specific to naturalist books. And so I'm glad this one's on the mushroom shelf now. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I remember someone asked if I could review the names of the books that I mentioned in the show. Ascomycete Fungi of North America uh, by the University of Texas Press. Uh, that was what I read at the beginning. And then I read a selection from Mushrooms of the Northeastern United States and Eastern Canada by Timothy Baroni uh, off of Timber Press. And again, that review, and I read some from this already as well earlier in the show, the National Audubon Society, Mushrooms of North America. And that one just came out. That's on Knopf. Knopf. K-N-O-P-F. Yeah. And um, if you tuned in a couple of weeks ago and you heard that episode all about the flycatchers and uh, Epidinax species, Princeton University Press is just putting out a cool book on insects, and I expect to be receiving that soon. So tune in if you want to hear about that one when it comes out. I'm really excited to see what it has to say about carrion beetles. Probably won't be much because it's trying to cover a like hundreds of species, a bunch of different families. But if it gets on the necrophorinae, I am stoked. I am stoked. I want to learn more about the Necrophoridae and Necrophorinase and, and all those carrion beetles. So here goes to summer. If you want to learn more about the show, uh, you can go to the website to know the land, www.tonowtheland.com. You can check it out on Instagram at to know the land. You can email me to know the land at gmail.com. You can do sky writing. Hey, Byron, what's up? or what else messages in bottles if I saw a note in a bottle I would definitely collect it and pick it up and bring it home and read it you can use code and I could try and decipher it just make it fun and I'll, I'll, I'll do my best um, you can also support the show by offering a donation that's always helpful you can check out PayPal. Uh, there's a PayPal link or Patreon that work on my website. Um, it is, you can just go to toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. And there's more details there. And yeah, that always helps. That always helps. I'm trying to get some better equipment and a potential grant that I was thinking about didn't work out. So uh, we'll see what else happens. And See what else I can figure out for this show to make it work. But thank you to all those who support right now. That's amazing. It's really helpful. Anything else? I don't know. Not much else. Yeah, that's it. That's all. Take care.